From Rivers Barden Architects, this is Spork in the Road, a podcast featuring conversations with creative individuals about their path, craft, and passions. In this episode, our resident architects Joe Rivers and Kevin Barden visit with Brendan Macaluso, a vintage motorcycle specialist and industrial designer from Houston, Texas. He, he said to us one day, he goes, so where do you think all that stuff is now? What do you mean? What do you think it is now? Everything I ever designed for Zenith, I guarantee you, it's in the landfill. Industrial designers, we make landfill. And that just hit me like, whoa, he's totally right. He's 100% right. Brendan Macaluso currently operates Common Motor Collective a support and resource for vintage Honda motorcycles, and a cooperatively run community workshop based in Houston, Texas. Joe and Kevin sat down with Brendan to discuss his gearhead roots, his background in industrial design, and the origins of Common Motor. Here's Kevin, followed by Brendan. Your background originally is in industrial design. Kind of tell us about your background in, in ID. ID. Well, actually, I, I, ID found me later. Oh, I didn't realize I was had this inkling for ID. I didn't even know what ID was. So I've been I've been doing gearhead mechanic yeah. things with nuts and bolts, mechanical type things, and I have an, a natural aptitude for that. I had since I was a child. I was always doing that kind of work, and I've always been doing that type of work. Hmm. For some reason, it started off. My neighbor gave me a lawnmower when I was about ten years old, and I, I mowed lawns for a summer, being entrepreneurial, and realized <laughs> this is a lot of work, especially when you have a crappy lawnmower. And I was just like. No, we're not going to do this again. And but it wasn't working. And I had my dad. I was like, I think I just want to sell that lawnmower. Sell it. Take the money from that. Well, let's fix it up. Well, what does it need to fix up? Mm-hmm. And that's when I started kind of diving into. Let's figure out how to fix it up. And my dad had shown me some of the basic type of stuff. And all right. And I within a few months I started. I had a lawnmower repair and flipping business <laughs> at age eleven or twelve. I, put, I would put an ad in the old freebie, you know, classified papers that were always in neighborhoods. And people from around the, the county would call me up. I grew up on the northeast side of town. My dad would go take me out to there. And sometimes they were free, get them out of here. Sometimes they were like, give me, you know, 10 bucks for them. Okay. And started buying product. And, you know, I needed parts. I went down to the, the lawnmower shop that had a big, you know, mountain of dead lawnmower carcasses and buy some parts there and put another free ad in the, the same paper. Turn around, 100 bucks, 150 bucks for a fixed-up lawnmower, and people come out, buy the lawnmower, and give me cash. Wow. That's how, that's how that whole gearhead kind of entrepreneurial part flipping thing started. Wow. And then I got into outboard motors. And my dad had an old little boat motor in the garage, and I was like, well, I want to tinker with that. And so anyway, I got this little boat motor, fixed it up, and find out through the boat club he's in, there's also an outboard motor club. Talk about nerdy. <laughs> nerdy here. Mm-hmm. So I, the apple doesn't fall far from no, the tree. No, I, mm-hmm. I joined this outboard motor club, which is what twelve-year-old kid, when there's a when there's a Super Nintendo, joins this club to tinker around with old motors with a bunch of guys that are like in their fifties to the seventies, right? So met a bunch of interesting, quirky people. Uh, some of them ended up becoming my mentors on this stuff because they're like, who's this kid who's doing this stuff and. Um, and then turned 16 and got into the car thing. Mm-hmm. Got heavy into the car thing. <laughs> heavy. And then, uh, then I shelved it. But, and there was this like weird idea. Was, I don't know where I got this from. Maybe it was just 
it, it, it didn't come from my parents. It came from, I think, other, like, other adults around me that, you know, you're going to be, it was this very, like, white-collar, blue-collar philosophy, right? Like, messing yeah. with cars and stuff is blue-collar. You go to college, you're going to be doing white-collar stuff. And you don't want to be doing that blue-collar stuff. So you had to make that separation. Hmm. You don't do that anymore. And it was really weird for me. And I, so I shelved the car. Didn't sell it, but I shelved it. Mm-hmm. School, focused on school. And then um, I actually went to school for, I went to school at UT. Cool. <laughs> nice. <I> Ouch. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> Uh, went to school at UT for um, for business actually. Oh. I was wanted to do entrepreneurship, and I got to the business school at UT, and I learned very really quickly it's not about entrepreneurship; it's more about corporate assimilation, and that is not what I wanted to be doing. And um, I was just kind of frustrated with what I spent my time and money on in educational wise, and I was like, this isn't. I felt trapped. Right. I felt trapped. Like I had chosen this path and I got in this degree and this thing and now I have to go do this thing that I studied for for the rest of my life and it seems kind of miserable and uninspiring. And so it was really depressing. How, <laughs> like, how do you, how do you, how do you uh, break out of the, yeah. <clears throat> I ended up, uh, came back here to Houston and went to community college mm-hmm. and took interior design classes for a year. Uh, there was a really sharp teacher there and she just said to me, it's like, you need to do ID. Wow. I, you, you, I can see it. You need to pursue ID. You don't need to be here in interior design. That's where you need to go. Uh, the U of H had started their program about two years earlier. Right. So I applied. Didn't think I was going to get in. I was about ready to go down to the military recruiter and go Ooh, sign wow. up to be an officer. What a crossroads. Well, my, my parents are military. Wow. I, that was my plan B. I'm like, all right, why don't you get in the design school here at U of H? And I really wasn't going to push it beyond probably that. I would probably, you know, sign up to be in the service. But mm-hmm. Were there other teachers or experiences at U of H that kind of guided you to your next step uh, after school? Or We had an adjunct uh, faculty come in. Another guy who was, um, had had a kind of a career in ID and now was kind of like, let me teach. And travel. he was traveling around in his, his Westphalia, you know, V-Dub thing and go crash somewhere for a few months and teach and then go in the next place and nice teach and <laughs> and and he was a tough teacher i got him a lot of the other students didn't get him i got where he's coming from and he really made something click in my head and he worked for zenith in the 70s and his first few years though he was a uh, cabinet designer because appliances were furniture right yep credenzas with record players in them and you know, those big wooden TVs yeah. that would sit on the ground. Yeah. And talking about Zenith, and he, he said to us one day, he goes, so where do you think all that stuff is now? What do you mean? What do you think it is now? I don't know. He goes, everything I ever designed for Zenith, I guarantee you it's in the landfill. Industrial designers, we are the sole source of what is our consumer good society and the things we make become landfill. And that just hit me like, whoa, he's totally right. He's a hundred percent right. Anyway, that, that really inspired me and I got heavily um, started thinking about, well, what is sustainability? Right. And that's where I put my energy and focus on for my thesis work at U of H. Wow. And trying to figure out what that meant. I chased that, I chased that rabbit down the hole for the next five years. <laughs>
Wow. So I had, before I got into the whole motorcycle thing, I had a totally different company I started. That's really? all design-based, yeah. They called what? It was called Recompute. My thesis work was about sustainability, manufactured goods, and what do we use, what do we consume, what are we throwing away? Coming back all the way from Jack's, what's the landfill? What's going in the landfill then? Let's start figuring it out. I was approaching the, the situation backwards. Let's start at the landfill and work back. Long story short, I ended up designing a computer. Hmm. Made a cardboard. Oh. Wow. I identified an object that was a high consumption, short life cycle, super complicated to manufacture. And electronics are the absolute worst of the worst. Oh, right. yeah. All, all the odds are stacked against us, and that life cycle continues to get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And so I ended up getting all these old desktops from the recycling pile and just started taking them all apart. What's in these things? What is the, what is the failure point, right? Because we know if you have, let's say, a car and the engine blows in it and you want to keep the car, what do you do? Replace the, the engine. Replace the engine, right? Uh, the engine could be possibly rebuilt, right? Mm-hmm. Remanufactured and put back in service and keep going. Mm-hmm. And well, what about this electronic stuff? What's, what's killing the electronic thing and it had to do with, you know, the, the guts wore out, right? The, the hard drive crashes or the power supply cooks or, you know, processor f- fries or something like that. And so basically when you're upgrading a computer, really all you need to upgrade was some of these electronic bits. All the other pieces that went in the equation, all those little injected and molded plastic pieces and stamped metal assemblies and all the other, like, parts, there's nothing wrong with that stuff. And so I ended up designing this, basically it was a cardboard case that held the bare minimum electronics you needed to keep the computer going and was modular in the sense that I used existing industry standards that were common amongst the builder community that the big manufacturers did not use. There's a lot of layers of that sustainability equation I got into with, uh, with electronics and uh, the reality is the timing of it was, was, was poor. Timing was poor because right when I came out with the first concept of the computer, iPhone one hits. Yeah. And uh, so the, just the, the timing of it was wrong. I just never got that, that seed you needed to, to scale and spool something up based on this, or at least to use this as a, a foot in the door with a bigger, um, a bigger entity that's like, all right, we see the concepts here. How do we borrow these ideas and apply it to the next, right. the next thing? Because right? it was all about the philosophy and the, and the design process versus the actual object. The actual object. The object it had a finite life to it. Mm-hmm. That's that, and that was the end of that. And I was like, I'm done with this. Like, I'm right. so done with this. I don't care about technology. I don't care about computers. It was just an application of a sustainability and design philosophy. Inherently. And the thing is with, with technology is, while you realize you might be excited about it when it first comes out, it's a downhill from there. Mm-hmm. You don't stay excited about it, right? Right. And I said, well, p- part of sustainability has to do with people's passion for the object. Mm-hmm. Right, passion for the thing or the interest in the thing it also has to do with the time you spend with it the more time you spend with it the more you know, interest you have for it and uh, motorcycles fell into that category you know, cars, motorcycles uh, boats um, you know, and that's kind of where what happened with what, what, where I'm at now with, with a common motor was okay what does obsolescence really mean in a thing it has to do with lack of knowledge 
or lack of knowledge exchange, let's say knowledge exchange, knowledge exchange lack of information about the, the product or the object, and um, support as far as parts and pieces and stuff that keep it going. That's it. If you have those elements to it, you can take most physical objects and make them not obsolete. That's kind of where I'm, you know, a bigger picture thinking of where Kyle Motor is. We said, let's take the, the handful of the bikes that are very common, mass volume, support them very well, document them as best as possible, show how to do this, how to do that. So one of the biggest products that we come up with is uh, technical tutorials mm -hmm. that we put out for free out there on the internet. Here's the written documentation. Here's the video on how to take this thing apart and adjust it. Here's the parts you're gonna need for it. That's what it boils down to, like helping that greater community figure out how to take this object from obsolescence to uh, being usable again and and doing that and being able to empower them themselves to do it and then take that ownership of, yeah, I took this apart and adjusted this and fixed that, uh, more so than the original owner group who bought the bikes had. Right. That's the, the same story I hear from, from customers mm -hmm. all the time. Found this old bike, got this old bike, found you guys on YouTube, started watching some of your videos. Hey, I got some questions. You know, like thousands and thousands and thousands of people are doing that. But they're by themselves. Mm -hmm. They're in their garage. There isn't a community of people physically there, per se. Most, in most places, they're just like, I'm out in small Midwest town, you know. Yeah, how many, how much of the inquiries that you get are from within Houston versus outside of Houston or just like the Midwest from, or anywhere? From, from Houston, very few. Finding someone who had a bike that was actually sold here in Houston and came right. from a dealer in Houston is super rare. Huh. Almost everything comes that we see that we see here it comes from out of state. Uh, even even in like Austin, Dallas, same way. It just really wasn't present here. Same thing across the Southwest. You just didn't see it. <laughs> so we're we are kind of in a motorcycle desert, more or less. Hmm. Um, so inquiries come from uh, around the world in the U.S., mostly the Midwest, California, mm -hmm. um, and then globally. Uh, next tier be Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the U.K., and wow. then. Some crazy places that these motorcycles <laughs> ended up. And like, I have this model that was not sold in this country, but it was imported by someone. Maybe someone in the military imported it and had it. And now it's sitting here on the island, and I'm fixing it up. So, wow. yeah, we ship parts around the globe for people. Wow. I just sent an order out yesterday to the Philippines. The guy's been working on his bike down there for several, on and off for several years. We, <laughs> one particular customer in the Philippines, yeah. Did you find, like, vintage Honda motorcycles as a as a product that fit the bill of this this sustainability ethos or was it uh, kind of like the perfect combination of things that you're passionate about on uh, on a, on many different sides or absolutely so it's it's a combination of all of those uh, yeah. I think with the with the with the the Honda stuff I said it was scale produced yep right? Manufacturing quality for the time mm -hmm. was superior. Right, still is pretty damn good for today's standards. But like, they really the bar was there. Um, being a designer, Honda is a, the big innovator. They are the company with the big vision, moving f forward, onward, no matter what. And uh, the old man Honda, Sergio Honda himself, was always a big. And when you do something, you do it the best you can. And the next time you do it, you do it better. Uh, so Honda was innovator, big time, hands down. So that's you know, just seeing that at all, all the levels that I can 
recognize that at, and that's why Honda has been the brand that I got behind. Suppose the the timeline between Recompute and Motor Collective. About a year. About a year. Wow. <clears throat> About a year. I, I was Recompute. I was just at one day. I was just like, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. I'm done. And just didn't, didn't know what I was going to do next. I was just, I, I picked up a job back at my old consultancy I used to work at. Um, and I had had, I, I had bought a, uh, an old Honda a few years earlier to tinker around with. So I, that, that was the, the initial, like, I just wanted to fix something. Right. I wanted something with nuts and bolts and gears on it to play with. And when I finally got it all together, I guess I said, well, I guess I better learn to ride it. I just sell it, <laughs> right? Sell it, but it's like, you know, it's kind of Frankenstein together. It's not like it's a re- restored type of thing. It was just mm-hmm. running and working. And, or I, I guess I learned to ride it. And the only way to get it tuned right is to kind of ride it. And so I started doing that. Wow. And that's how that snowball started. The motorcycle interests, I, uh, I'm actually just down the street here. My oh, friend, really? Yeah, just down the street here, a few blocks over. My friend, my roommate moves over here and has a garage. Hey, man, I got a garage. I said, well, come use the garage. And so I'm over there working on my bike, and I take it for a quick buzz around the block. I have to do some adjustment on it, and I'm wearing blue nitro gloves, right? Because I have to do that. I don't get the chemicals all over my hand. And um, at the intersection, I'm literally, like, three blocks from here. <laughs> oh, yeah, the overpass? Yeah, by the overpass. And this guy is, like, I'm trying to go, and he's, like, waving me on. I'm like, no, you go. Like, I'm, I don't trust drivers. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you go. And I finally, I go. I'm like, screw this. And I, I go, and I pull into the, the house just a few blocks away. And this guy follows me. And then he walks up the driveway and approaches me. He says, hey, man, um, don't mean to creep on you, but I saw you got this old bike. And I saw you had the clothes on. I know you're working on that bike. <laughs> Can you teach me? And I'm like, who are you? Mm-hmm. Like walking up on it. No, no, I mean, I'm serious. I'm, I'm dead serious. Like, I, I mean that. I was like, whatever. I want to get this stuff done. I got to get out of here and go to work and he's like, hold on I'll be right back sure enough like five minutes later he comes back on an old Honda mid 70s Honda 550 he says I used to live out in California I did the cross rocket thing and I almost killed myself and I realized I like motorcycles but I don't need to be doing that path and I've always wanted to learn how to do work I bought this old bike so I could learn to work on it but I can't find anybody to show me how to work on it Will you teach me? Show up here next week. Bring a hundred bucks cash. See if it, see if this is real. <laughs> sure as hell, he shows up, rolls up with the bike at the time, walks up to me, puts the hundred dollar bill in my hand, says, "Teach me." Wow. I'm like, all right. Kind of started snowballing from there. I put an ad on Craigslist and said, "Hey, I'll help you fix your old motorcycle. Why not?" And people were contacting me. I got this old bike. There's clearly an interest out there. Mm-hmm. I can't keep up with everybody who's giving me an interest. Wow. So it, it all happened in a very, like, multiple directions. It didn't, like, just one thing. It was like a... Organic... You know, uh, the universe was strange like that. Yeah. The timing and people were just show up, right? And, like, I was very hesitant starting a motorcycle shop. Sure, yeah. Super hesitant. Because I didn't want a stigma. Yeah. I didn't want to be associated with this the stigma that's around certain you know, biker culture and don't want to fall into these you know, pigeonholes. That's not what mm-hmm. we're about. It's not about a, a style. It's not about an aesthetic. It's about understanding the nuts and bolts of it. And right. that was something that I, I found curious being in the car world, right? 
the car world's full of a lot of machismo. And I got tired of it. Yeah. I got tired of this, like, you know, this, uh, the contest of who's more, you know, macho or faster than each other. And because I didn't see it that way. I saw it as, well, this is, no, this is mechanics and engineering and understanding how, how the pieces work. And if you're clever, you put the pieces together the right way and you understand how they work, you can then you know, get the most out of it. But it's about being smart and understanding the system than it is you know, trying to have a desired like effect. The motorcycles have, I think, less of that as far as a culture goes, like mm-hmm. as a whole, there's less of that. I mean, it totally exists, but there's mm-hmm. just definitely less of it. And that's where I wanted to be. The outboard motor stuff is zero pretension. Right. And you can't be pretentious with a, like a three horsepower outboard motor <laughs> on your boat. On a fishing you know? boat going, yeah. But you can be like proud that you pulled the, the cord once and it fired up and runs yep. like a top. You know? So yep. like, that's kind of where that. And it's 53 years old. 53 years old. It still goes, right? <laughs> so my, one of my bars of success with people who are you know, involved at, the local level of the shop who work on their bikes and hopefully with you <clears throat> most of the clients that we have is that you know your motorcycle you walk up to it you turn it on you kick start it hit, hit it once or twice and boom it fires up and you can get on that bike and you can go ride it a couple hundred miles down the road and come back and you enjoyed yourself mm-hmm. what advice would you give to someone who just feels there's that that there's a piece missing like how to find their passion how to follow their passion I think as far as finding the passion, you got to trust your gut mm-hmm. on that one because your gut knows when it's right mm-hmm. and your gut definitely knows when it's wrong. Mm-hmm. We, we all have experienced, experienced that. So mm-hmm. trust your gut on, the, I guess, on exploring the curiosity. And whatever, whatever it is that maybe you have an inkling for, geek out on it. Get in. Learning as much as you can about that, that interest or that area. Go try to find other people that are maybe doing that. Well, not with a particular goal in mind, because um, I think when you try to have that hard goal in mind, it it limits your vision. I was I was thinking about you know, a friend of mine, his name is Corey, at that intersection, right? It's one of those you know right. uh, butterfly effect moments, right? Had I had I been you know a few seconds earlier that, at, at that intersection, had I like he had not seen me with the, with the gloves on, right. yeah, the natural right. gloves, that wouldn't have happened. Just in the right place, the right time. I had no. I wasn't trying to do motorcycle. Play. A neighbor giving you a lawnmower. At the a neighbor gave me a lawnmower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you knowing, I don't want to mow yards for a living. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah. Likewise, Thank you, I appreciate being here. Yeah. For more information on Brendan and Common Motor Collective, visit common-motor.com. A special thanks goes out to our guest, Brendan Macaluso, to our interviewers extraordinaire, Joe Rivers and Kevin Barden, and to those of you joining us for Season 4 of the podcast. This episode was produced, written, edited, narrated, and music by Scott Barden. Visit Rivers Barden Architects online at riversbarden.com.